Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Delighted to be back with you again this week. And we are uh, delighted also to welcome Bruce Stanley, who has been with us on numerous occasions. Bruce is President and Chief Executive Officer of the Methodist Home for Children, which is a advocacy group for uh, and a, a delivery of services to families and children and has been for many, many years. It's uh, changed courses during this time to uh, provide many, many additional services through the years to uh, almost all of North Carolina now. Uh, we'll talk more about that later on, but uh, Bruce also has become, in his uh, service there, uh, sort of a, a real uh, advocate for children and family in families in many situations. And uh, Bruce, that's kind of what I wanted to start off talking about today. Uh, uh, I think you mentioned just a few moments ago that uh, uh, the decline of the family may be uh, partially responsible for some of the acts of violence we're seeing. Absolutely. We had an event last week at the legislature, and Dr. Sam Gray, who's a psychologist with many years of clinical experience, uh, criminal psychology at uh, former Dorothea Dix Hospital, and then in private practice, and now with us at our crisis and psychological assessment centers, uh, was asked by one of the legislators if he could comment uh, in his professional opinion uh, uh, on whether he had a sense of uh, increasing frequency of offenses or increasing severity of violent acts. And Dr. Gray sadly nodded his head yes in assent and indicated he thought that there had been an increase in both. Legislator uh, responded with a follow-up question uh, and asked if uh, why, and he felt uh, you could attribute it to the decline uh, in the nuclear family, that fewer children um, being raised um, in a stable environment, many with uh, parents that are barely able to care for themselves, uh, much less care for their children, and also a breakdown some uh, in neighborhoods in which you don't have uh, family and friends uh, who are out there looking after the well-being of the child. Bruce, it's always sort of, uh, having grown up and being the age I am, um, the, uh, of course, I, you know, I lie about my age considerably, <laughs> but uh, I did uh, remember some things in the 40s. You're almost old enough not to have to do that, Don. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, but uh, one of the things that we uh, uh, used to see is that uh, uh, families ate together all the time. I mean, you always had a evening meal together, and um, and usually a lunch in the summer when school was out, you you uh, broke bread together, and that's that's kind of gone. And that is a profound insight from the world of behavioral health. Uh, in our multi-purpose group homes that we operate for the Division of Juvenile Justice, uh, the design of the home really centers uh, on the eating space and on the family meal. And we have a small population, only eight who are there, boys and girls serve together. But one of the vital things is that three times a day, they gather around the table. And Grace has said, and individuals share uh, how their day is going, what they're looking forward to, and people come to know one another. And we're trying to create for them a sense of family. And our hope is that when they leave us, that they're gonna be taking that with them and replicating that if not in their uh, home of origin, then as they grow into adulthood, that they're going to understand the importance of that for their own children and their own families. Well, that's sort of a simple thing, but it, it has gotten lost. Ab absolutely it has, yeah. and it's gotten lost under um, electronic devices in which people have their head down and aren't talking to one another or their earbuds in so they can't hear yeah. if someone is talking to them. 
it's also gotten lost with the proliferation of activities that would include athletic events and other things. Well, and the schedules uh, that the uh, young kids go through today is so packed. Uh, you know, they, they have activities at all hours of the day. They, they uh, really just don't have much time to be alone. No, ab- absolutely. And speaking of being old, I remember when TV dinners uh, were popular and people had fear then that the, the TV dinner was going to be the demise of the family dinner hour because everyone would put their TV dinner on their TV tray. On their TV and, tray. And, and simply uh, tune into the screen. And I think that that was mild compared to what we face today. Well, you see, I, I've been trying to tell my good friend Jim Goodman that television is responsible for all this. You know, you could have the radio on the background. <laughs> Uh, but television required sitting there. And see, I've blamed uh, he and all my uh, friends who are in television for the demise of the family. <laughs> uh, it's always wise to point the finger elsewhere. Well, I, see, I've always said this theory that God did not intend pictures to go through the air, just sound. That, that's, that, that's my theory, and I'm sticking to it. Uh, there are a lot of people that would disagree with me. But television and social media uh, have also worked against all this sort of thing because we have – a tremendous amount of time spent when we are alone, but we are sharing at that time with people who are not family. And there, are, and one of the ways that social media works against us uh, is that we are uh, creatures of habit and of impulse, and and people need to learn not to press send. And when somebody sees something that comes across one of the uh, social media, it is so easy to make an immediate and emotional response. Um, that you begin to get uh, poor behavior, and people get drawn into that. Well, it's uh, it, it, the the family life uh, and lifestyle has just changed so dramatically. It's uh, and I, uh, you know, I guess we have to adapt to it rather than go back to it because that's not going to happen. Oh, it's not. And there's, of course, you know, great advantages uh, to having the ability to do research online. And to be able to, you know, scroll through your television and not simply see what cable is bringing you, but use various apps in order to watch a great work of history and to learn something significant. But families do need to monitor that. And my wonderful wife, uh, Melissa, who was a teacher for many years, uh, decided early on that during school years, that um, school nights, that our children were going to get one hour of television a week. And she and my son settled on Lost as being their bonding medium. And, and, and so that was the show that they, uh, they watched together. But we wouldn't forbid it, but we would seriously regulate it. And we also put the computer in the middle of the house uh, so that we could monitor the use of that. And so they weren't up online at 2 a.m. And then when they got cell phones and personal communication devices, uh, we made sure that they didn't have those in their room after it was bedtime. And so there are ways to manage that and make sure that it is productive and, and instead of becoming destructive. So uh, are there any other major changes that you've observed beside, of course, the advent of television and the changes that's brought about in the way that uh, our off hours are spent? Uh, for example, um, uh, households where both, uh, both spouses are uh, working. And one of the stresses, I think, that is contributing to some of this decline and perhaps a, a lack of shared parenting and a lack of common time together, and it may not be an obvious impact, but is um, what's happening with the growing gap between the poor uh, and the wealthy in our country. And when you have got working poor who are having to cobble together 
uh, a couple, if not three jobs, uh, in order simply to pay rent and put bread on the table, uh, that means that they're at work instead of being at home and able to supervise and able to contribute. And it's not a choice anyone wants to make, but it's one that's made out of necessity. And as long as that gap continues to worsen, those circumstances are going to continue to be severe. So let me ask you this. Where does where is the church or the community of faith fit into all of this? And where does it uh, uh, take its role and, and infect some changes or provide some services? One of the things that the church really does need to do is to step forward and become responsible. When I was the director of field education at Duke Divinity School, we had a pastor from a large congregation in Roxbury, which is one of the more challenging neighborhoods in Boston. And he had become frustrated with gang involvement with his middle schoolers and high schoolers and took him a while to convince the gang leaders that he was serious about conversation and not simply looking to participate with the police and bust them. But he did get them to come in and sit down. And he asked them uh, about their recruiting and why they had such a great influence. And one of the gang leaders just simply shrugged and said, well, where's your deacons? And he said, I beg your pardon. And he said, well, we know when the time the kids get out of school and we're standing outside the gate of the school and we're offering to get them a new pair of Nikes uh, or get them a new shirt. And he said, I don't think we've ever seen any of your any of your deacons out there trying to chat the young men up and trying to recruit them and bring them in. And he said that was just a you know cup of cold water thrown in his face and realized, my goodness, he's correct that we have not been adequately present and we can't just simply, as the church, sit back in a receptive posture and wait for people to come through the door. We do have to be very active and step forward. And we have some organizations like Boys and Girls Clubs and, and Boy Scouts and so forth. But essentially, percentage-wise, they're not serving as many people as they once served. Absolutely. And, and so it does become a matter of us being aggressive and taking the services yeah. to them. Well, it's uh, it's a challenging and interesting situation, and it all involves the home, and that uh, uh, leads me to what we're going to be talking about there in the rest of the program, some of the many services and programs that the Methodist Home for Children is involved in. Uh, very briefly, uh, give a little bit of history as a setup for our next segment on what the Methodist Home for Children is now compared to what it was when it was begun. And we began in the 1890s. Uh, when uh, some people who were meeting at Edenton Street United Methodist Church in downtown Raleigh bought 60 acres and what back then was the woods uh, on the edge of Raleigh and that stretched from Peace Street up toward the Five Points neighborhood. And as an orphanage, we grew to a point where we had on that 60-acre campus 350 during the Depression and World War II. And circumstances change, fewer true orphans, and so we made a decision to become community-based instead of campus-based. And as a result, uh, we serve about 1,400 children, youth, and their families during the course of a year, and somebody from every county uh, in North Carolina. And, of course, it's, uh, there are many, uh, you, you've sort of changed, I guess, to family counseling as much as uh, counseling children. A- absolutely. We have a service array that sometimes functions as a service continuum, and our programs include uh, early childhood and in our early childhood programs at the uh, Jordan Center and soon at the Curtis Center. Uh, we work not only with the children themselves during the school day, but also with the families uh, after hours and on weekends whenever we've got the opportunity. We do foster care, we do therapeutic foster care, 
and individual homes. We do family preservation and family reunification, and which is based uh, upon the premise that children do better with their biological relatives. And so we're always trying to prevent family fracture and keep that structure intact. And then we do have 12 residential facilities for a variety of services that are stretched across the state. Our guest is Bruce Stanley, and we will be back with more right after these messages. I'm not staying home tonight. I'm at school all day. If they want me to do the work, give it to me while I'm at school. This guy has me coming to work 10 hours a day. So what if I didn't finish school? That doesn't mean he can work me like a dog. Hey, man, I need a few bucks. My car's busted and I need some cash. Hello? Hello? Every decision you make has a benefit or a consequence. Make the right choices today and be ready for the challenges tomorrow. This message is brought to you by the United States Air Force. Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting. A teenager learning the lingo. Today I'm going to help parents translate teen slang. Now, when a teen says something is on fleek, it's exactly like saying that's rad. It simply means that something is awesome or cool. Another one is totes. It's exactly like saying totally, just shorter. As in, I totes love going to the mall with Becca. Another word you might hear is jelly. Jelly is a shorter, better way to say jealous. As in, Chloe, I am like so jelly of your unicorn phone case. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will think you're, um, rad just the same. To learn more, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back with Bruce Stanley, President and CEO of the Methodist Home for Children, an advocacy group for children and families, a provider of services all across the state of North Carolina. Uh, Bruce, we, we had a great time in the first segment talking about the changes in, in lifestyle that may have led to uh, uh, s- more severe problems in the area of uh, crime and uh, safety. Uh, but I know you are very concerned right now with school safety because you're on a crime commission of the state of North Carolina that's working about that. Where do we stand on school safety? Because that's a touchy thing. Do we, do we allow teachers to be armed, for example? Uh, how do we provide... Uh, assurance that our children are going to be safe at school. Well, the citizens of North Carolina should really be proud of the work that was done by the Governor's Crime Commission and their Committee on School Safety. Uh, Joanne McDaniel resourced that commission. It was led by a couple of sheriffs, uh, Alan Cloninger and Donnie Harrison, and included a uh, an array of people. I was uh, fortunate to be part of that uh, as a representative of the provider community. And there are a number of components of school safety uh, that are crucial. One of the sobering things for me was that when the law enforcement uh, professionals are speaking, they aren't talking uh, about a violent act and saying if, they're saying when, and recognizing, sadly, our human brokenness and predisposition uh, toward that. But among the factors uh, that they identified uh, is that over the course of time, the FBI, looking back at these mass shooting incidents, have identified what they call leakage and said that in most of these instances, there were a minimum of three times uh, when someone who committed an atrocity had shared with a family member or friend their intent. 
and the family member or friend when quizzed about why would you not report that and why was that not disclosed? Did you not take it seriously? Uh, were you just wishing and hoping or were you perhaps just praying about it? The family member and friends said that they were afraid that if they called that the only response would be a legal one and that it would only be law enforcement. And they recognized the individual as somebody who was troubled and in need of mental health. And they had no confidence that mental health services would be provided for them. Now, you know, we're all worried about uh, uh, providing more facilities and, and uh, better pay for teachers, for example, in the area of education. But if we have to also uh, provide uh, school safety in the area of uh, uh, in excess of what we're doing now, that's going to come out of those budgets. Uh, well, it is. And, and directly or indirectly. Yes. And, and one of the things that the committee spent a lot of time on was the issue of what are known as the SROs, the school resource officers, which would be law enforcement professionals in the, in the classroom and in the school and the proper use of those individuals and the proper training. One of the challenges you face, for instance, Wake County having the largest school system in the state there are a number of jurisdictions that are supplying uh, school resource officers. So you've got the counties, and, and so you will have the sheriff's office, and then you've got municipalities. So you've got Morrisville, you've got Nightdale, you've got City of Raleigh. And how do you have one standard of training and, and implement that across that? We also um, know that there are some schools that have a safety officer in them, and others do not, and those are budgetary constraints. And we don't want that to become a political football where the law enforcement people say, that's not our expense, that's the education uh, system's expense. And we don't want that tossed back and forth in that way. But that, that is a tremendous issue, the quality and training of those people. So now one of the suggestions that some folks have is to arm some teachers. Is that a solution or another problem? Uh, that clearly is a suggestion is made and that was voiced. The uh, committee had three public hearings. And there were a couple of individuals from advocacy groups who wanted to make sure uh, that that opinion was expressed. Law enforcement professionals want fewer guns, not more guns. And they also recognize that for school safety, if you are talking about a mass shooter incident, that you really have got a response time of about 120 seconds uh, when the act is occurring. And, and so it, it becomes problematic and is, and is really, really difficult. The important thing is to intervene and stop it upstream. One of the things that North Carolina deserves some credit and praise for uh, is that a few years ago they began uh, operating with Division of Juvenile Justice uh, Crisis and Psychological Assessment Centers, and Methodist Home for Children is the operator of that particular service. There's one in Butner, one in Winston-Salem, and one in Asheville. And when young people uh, have been identified uh, as having made threats, uh, whether from their classmates, whether they've done that online in one form or another, uh, they can be sent. And our staff has an opportunity to sit down with them uh, directly upon intake, but then also to interact and be with them for up to a month and determine whether this is somebody who simply was posturing and being incautious or whether this was somebody who really was planning and who was in need of deep treatment. And that is an important intervention. You've got to stop it on the other side of the street. You can't stop it in the hallway of the school. Now, uh, we've talked about all sorts of things. Uh, I do want to ask one more question. Uh, I think we've learned uh, some, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago, we became aware that the problem really starts in the middle school. We always thought it was high school there for a while, but it's middle school. Is that where it starts or does it start earlier? 
No, middle school is exactly where that starts, mm-hmm. and, and it does begin at that point in time, and it's important for us to recognize that, and it may be hard to conceive of, um, but that a child that young uh, is able to articulate and plan that. But our kids are exposed to so many things so much sooner than they used to be that middle school is exactly where a lot of the problems begin to present themselves. And, and it's not always easy to see uh, at a distance. Mm-hmm. And one of the young people who came to our crisis and assessment center um, was, by uh, outward appearance, somebody who had a, a violent predisposition. And the young man had actually been building some bombs. And he had schematic drawings that he had worked out and sketched of the school and uh, location of the classrooms, hallways. But truth of the matter is, he wasn't a bad kid. Uh, he was an engineer. And when we did psychological testing on him, that includes IQ testing, and the staff gave him an advanced test for engineering that um, helps you determine somebody's ability uh, to work uh, spatially, and he was just off the charts. And they found out that he wasn't so much interested in building bombs as he was just interested in building. And I liked firecrackers and M80s and things that made a loud noise. And so we were able to redirect and find a a positive path uh, for this young man. And so, again, from a distance, he may have looked like somebody that was a threat, uh, but he was not. Now, we've uh, the the word uh, drugs has come up several times in our conversation, but the the drug problem is – is that getting worse or better? I'm going to say it continues to be severe. At Methodist Home, about 80% of that 1,400 children, youth, and their families that we serve uh, come from homes uh, that are substance-affected. And it is either uh, drug use by the parents, uh, the children, and in many cases both. North Carolina continues to be challenged because we've got a beautiful, wonderful coastline uh, with easy ingress. We've got highways that crisscross the state including I-95, which is the corridor between Miami and New York. And there is an ever-present supply of, of drugs that are coming in, as well as the ones that are manufactured and made here. Monkey see, monkey do. Uh, the, the children see their parents do certain things, and so they think some of them are okay. Uh, uh, and parents sometimes endorse things. Uh uh, that uh, maybe parents wouldn't have endorsed years before. Um, uh, now, you also see stories where kids come out and say, I see this and I'm not going to do that. How does that work? Because some some kids say, that's not the way I'm going to raise my children. Others say, you know, that's the way it is. People internalize uh, life experiences very, very differently. And we have had children from the same families who have reacted uh, in ways that uh, you would even wonder if they had come from the same roof. Had uh, one family uh, with a number of children uh, who had been homeless for a while and had been given shelter uh, in the community, frankly, uh, in a funeral home. Uh, That they had room upstairs where staff would stay and the owner of that funeral home, taking pity on this family and wanting to keep social services out of it, had housed them up above that for a while. One of those young men uh, became a tremendous scholar and committed himself to school and education and was bound and determined that he was not going to live that life uh, and that he was going to raise his own family in a stable way and had a great sense of gratitude for the people who, when they were falling through the cracks, had pulled them up and sheltered them and given them food and a place to live. And then he had siblings uh, who received that experience very differently, and they just burned with rage and resentment. Why did that happen to us? We were mistreated. Why didn't we have things other people had? 
and they became angry and um, ended up in the law enforcement system and with a ton of criminal involvement. And again, individuals receive that differently. I know of a situation where uh, there was a family who had six sons, three became ministers, and three became alcoholics. Uh, and uh, the, the, when you'd quiz the father, he'd say, you know, I love them equally. I thought I raised them the same. And they receive it differently. Yes. And, and those, those would be six different individuals. So how much of this involves training parents? A lot of it involves training parents, and I spoke uh, in, in our service array uh, about doing work with family reunification and family preservation, and we use evidence-based models in which we are trying to provide structure for the homes. Some of the things would seem routine, that you ought to have a budget and, and know what your income is, that your money ought to be f- spent first uh, on things that are healthy uh, instead of on upon buying beer, that there ought to be a bedtime that is established, mealtime, as we've already discussed earlier in this broadcast. Uh, But a lot of it has to do with educating the parents and teaching them uh, how to interact with their children. And uh, that, as we said, is sometimes a real challenge, even for the very best of parents. (laughs) So parent training is not just for those in crisis. Absolutely. Um, We had one woman who's... um, inability to discipline her child was uh, frustrating one of our staff members and it was clear to him that this uh, young child was really the one who was in charge in the home this staff member uh, happened to be about six foot four inches tall and when he was trying to do role plays and rehearse with the mom how to address the child she was having trouble because she's looking up at him and she said oh i just feel so intimidated talking to you so he took his shoes off and got down on his knees and put his knees in his shoes so it looked like those were his feet and then had her practice speaking over the top of his head and uh, had a wonderful clinical breakthrough. Our guest is Bruce Stanley, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Methodist Home for Children. We'll be back for, with more right after these messages. One in three adults in America have prediabetes, but most don't know it. To let people know it can be reversed before it becomes type 2 diabetes, professional basketball player Julius Randle is doing everything in reverse. I'm only dunking with reverse windmills. I drove the whole way to practice in reverse. I don't recommend it. This move's called the reverse shuffle. I do recommend it. And it took me months to learn how to speak in reverse, like this. Here's 10 almost for diabetes type 2 with living Ben has mom my. In other words, my mom has been living with type 2 diabetes for almost 10 years. So together, we want to say to the 84 million Americans at risk, exercise and healthy eating can help reverse prediabetes. Start by taking a simple one-minute risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. <laughs> Betty can't say that in reverse. You've got your shades on, do you? So cool, so hip, so sheltered by frames of UV protection to show the world you are a force. But did you also know by wearing sunglasses you're doing your eyes a favor? That's right, sunglasses help avoid overexposure to the sun, which can produce red eyes, a feeling of grittiness, even excessive tearing. But you, oh master of the incognito, are taking care of your eyes without even knowing it. For more easy ways to keep keeping your eyes healthy, see your optometrist or visit AOA.org. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. 
We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Bruce Stanley has been with us on numerous occasions. He's the president and CEO of the Methodist Home for Children, which is a very interesting organization. And we talked earlier about its origins and how it has uh, evolved through the years. Uh, Bruce, let's just sort of give an overview of all the many different kinds of services that the Methodist Home for Children uh, provides not only uh, uh, I mean, it's Methodist-sponsored, but you it's not just for Methodist. We are a public-private partnership, and while we receive uh, an awful lot of support from the United Methodist uh, Church, from the annual conference, as well as from individual congregations and individual uh, United Methodist Church members, we also are always trying to leverage public funds. And we do that for foster care. We do that for adoptions. We do that for the NC Pre-K program and our work with early childhood. And we also are a contract provider for the Division of Juvenile Justice to provide group homes that are therapeutic alternatives to sending youth off to prisons. And we have two group homes in Jacksonville that are for duly diagnosed teenagers. All of them have an autism spectrum disorder and then a diagnosis in addition to that. So they may have autism and cerebral palsy. They may have autism and uh, an emerging bipolar. And, and that is a, a beautiful, wonderful work. And that is uh, part of the work that we do that is funded with Medicaid money. So the funding streams really are mixed and blended. And we think that's a beautiful thing. We think it's the responsibility of the church to care for God's children. We also think it's the responsibility of society to care for its citizens. And we know that none of us have enough resources by ourselves, that we have to combine them and we have to share and leverage expertise as well as the dollars. And many of the counties have actually turned a lot of their programs over to you because they, the county, either through the size of the county, could not do it, or they just felt like, okay, this is something you do better than we do. Well, and we believe uh, that that is the case, Don, and we know that there are some wonderfully uh, committed and dedicated uh, folks who work for county and state, but we also know as a private provider that we aren't constrained in the same way uh, that the public employees are, that we are able to be a little more nimble and, and to act more efficiently. We also know uh, that we can do this a lot more cheaply. Uh, if only because these are our employees and the uh, burden of the expenses don't fall on the counties and state. It takes a special person to want to work as this as a career. Do you find, is that a difficulty uh, that you face in finding people who care enough to do this? Because this is a, this is a sacrifice. They're not going to make the same money that other folks make. Well, that's exactly right. It, it does have to be a calling. And one of the strengths, uh, we believe, of using a faith-based agency, such as Methodist Home for Children, as a service provider, is that people look at this as their life's mission. And the ones who come to work for us uh, have aligned their life's mission with our mission. And you're correct about the sacrifice. If, for instance, you go to work as a resident counselor in one of our juvenile justice multipurpose homes, uh, in order to provide continuity and the most family-like environment possible, we have what you might think of as being a fireman's shift, that they will come work for three days straight. And they are actually sleeping and staying overnight in the home. They have four days off after that, uh, but three days on. And that is a tremendous amount of commitment. And if you're raising a family on your own, they simply have to know that you're going to be unavailable for a period of time. Foster parents are an unusual breed. They, they absolutely are. And since I have been in this job, they have become some of my great heroes. It's not simply that they uh, open their hearts, but they have opened their homes. And they agree to undergo some rigorous training in advance 
And then we ask them to do something that really makes them vulnerable. We want them to fall in love. And they may fall in love with a child who is there uh, only for 90 days or for uh, perhaps six months, and then the child will be gone and uh, reunified with their biological family. Uh, But they do tremendous work and regard these children as if they are their own. They do not otherize and, and think of these children as being something besides. They integrate them and incorporate them into their own family. I, I guess you have to learn to enjoy your successes because you're also going to have some failures. That would be correct. And we deal with, uh, we are swimming in the deep end of the pool uh, many times. And we do, it's difficult at intake uh, when you see a report that's written by a caseworker from social services, mental health, somebody who comes in through the court system and see some of the things that have been visited upon these children and some of the ways in which they've been neglected and abused. But it's also wonderful observing the transformation that occurs because the skill of our staff, and I would say the grace of God, uh, to see them change over time. Your alumni, tell me about the alumni, the ones that come back uh, because of the experiences they had. And we have got alumni in a couple of different categories. We have an orphanage alumni association, which still has over 2,000 people. Uh, who are who were raised on the old campus. They gather three times a year, and they're about to gather again in Raleigh Easter weekend mm-hmm. at the North Raleigh Hilton, and they'll be there for three days mm-hmm. and uh, love up on one another and tell stories of the old days, and they refer to themselves as orphanage brothers and sisters. Uh, we have more recent alums who come back uh, in a variety of ways. Uh, we have uh, actually one child who you, who was raised in foster care with us and then adopted by one of our families who went through school on our college scholarship program, the HELP program, uh, obtained a degree in social work, and he now works for us as a resident counselor in one of our juvenile justice homes. And he said that as he was going through school, uh, his motivating factor the entire time was trying to put himself in a position where he could give back to the people who gave to him. Well, obviously, this takes an awful lot of training and so forth. So how do you incorporate people who want to volunteer? Because uh, there's so much of this that requires extensive training to handle, but I'm sure you have also people who want to give time. We do, and you have uh, highlighted one of the challenges we have. It is not easy for us uh, because of HIPAA regulations, and we are not allowed even to identify, for instance, a child as being uh, in foster care. That would be considered a, a violation of standards. And so it's not real easy for us to have volunteers come in, but we do in our early childhood program uh, have people who come in and uh, interact uh, there. Uh, We have uh, in some of our group homes individuals who come to us, and we, of course, do background checks, do some training with them. Uh, We, for instance, at one of the transitional living homes, we operate for female offenders coming out of the youth prisons, have had two people who have been doing some art therapy, Uh, one individual with painting and another woman who uh, makes jewelry and doing that with the young women. So we do have some opportunities for people to get engaged that way. And then on the fundraising side, which is a constant need for us, we have people who work very hard on events that we stage in Raleigh, in Wilmington, and in Greenville also. So uh, you came back to the word uh, fundraising. Uh, what is your budget? How much money do you bring in, and how much? Of course, you spend it all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we pride ourselves on putting the non in nonprofit, uh, and over a ten-year period, the last decade, uh, it' fascinating to look back. But we ran about twenty thousand dollars in the black, 
and while the word nonprofit and that was over how long a 10-year period well that's like the carolina duke basketball rivalry. That, that's it's 50, exactly 50. right it's 50 50 over the last 100 games and the reality is uh, that you can't be a nonprofit because if you don't operate in the black your doors are closed and you have to have some sort of margin but for each one of those about 1400 children youth and their families that we serve each year to cover the true cost of care we have to raise 1600 dollars for each one of those 1,400 uh, children, youth, and their families. So that is a significant fundraising burden, and I would invite all the listeners to come run alongside us. So uh, what, what do you see as the future of your organization and others that are doing similar things uh, as far as funding? Is, is this something that has now become uh, in the forefront to the point where funding is going to get to be somewhat easier? Or is the problem going to grow faster than the uh, than the funds available? We have not seen an increase. Or both. <laughs> yeah, we, yes, we've not seen an increase, for instance, in foster care rates yep. in the state of North Carolina since 2008. We've also not seen an increase uh, in the rates for the NC pre-K program uh, in that same period of time. And so reliance upon public funding, reliance upon public funding sources – is uh, not something uh, that we feel all that confident about. It used to be that corporations prided themselves on matching gifts, and we have seen a retreat uh, in that sphere. And so what we have what we have now are individuals who are stepping forward to uh, supply the need. And more and more, our fundraising efforts are faced are, are focused upon individual donors and givers. For the last, uh, I don't know, beginning with the Jim Hunt administration, we have put more and more emphasis on preschool programs. Are you seeing that that is having a positive effect? And, of course, the problem with uh, that question is you don't know what would be going on if we didn't have them. And there is an awful lot of research out there that says that uh, absolutely that pre-K programs uh, are vital. And it used to be thought that the impact would wear off after third grade. Uh, that when you've got the shift in reading that occurs, but we now know that the impact goes a whole lot longer. And we do. We are the largest provider in the state for the Division of Juvenile Justice for these therapeutic homes with the multipurpose homes, but we don't really want to do that work, and we would rather do intervention and prevention. And we can predict who a juvenile offender is going to be. It is somebody who is raised birth through age five in a home with high stress and low stimulus. And if you want to know who is going to finish high school, who's going to avoid involvement with the uh, judicial system, flip the script. It's a child who's raised birth through five in a home where there is low stress and where there is high stimulus. And so this work in preschool is absolutely essential. So a lot of this goes into other things like providing jobs for parents. It absolutely, and the community needs to recognize that this is a job readiness program, and you may not think about it, but a four-year-old who is given an, the absolutely highest quality early childhood experience in a blended classroom with evidence-based curriculum and evidence-based discipline, that's a workforce readiness issue because that's somebody who is going to finish high school and be ready at age 18, either to go to school or to enter the workforce. Do most of these kids understand that if they really want to, they can get to college some way or another? We certainly try to make that clear to all of the ones who are in our care. And one of the remarkable things about Methodist Home for Children is we have a lifetime commitment to put anyone who has been in foster care, anybody who's been adopted, anybody in one of our group homes through at least four years of college. 
and if they can keep a B average, uh, we'll pay for a master's degree as well. And we assign mentors to them, and we are whispering in their ears when they're 14, 15 years of age and in these group homes or in these foster homes, and we're always trying to bring them around uh, to meet the other, uh, to meet the recent graduates and see those who are in school and keep telling them, this can be your life. This is possible for you. Our guest is Bruce Stanley, President and CEO of the Methodist Home for Children, and we have one final segment coming up right after these messages. As an 18-year-old, I let my mistakes kind of take over my life. I was 0.5 credits away from completing high school, and I didn't do it. Ten years later, at age 28, Jackie finished her high school diploma. When I found out that I was pregnant, I know that I had to do something for myself if I wanted to make her a better person and provide a better life for her. My family never stopped pushing for me to be better because they knew what I could become and who I could become as a person. My support team is amazing. The educational director, my sister, and even my seven-year-old daughter has just been more than the support that I could ask for. I've been given an opportunity, and I'm just thankful for it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. When we get old, will you take care of me if I can't get around anymore? Of course. We'll find a way. Are you going to take care of me if I can't see anymore? I'll read to you every day. And if one of us gets Alzheimer's disease, what then? Call 1-800-437-2423 for a free booklet on caring for your loved ones from Alzheimer's Disease Research. 1-800-437-2423. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back with uh, Bruce Stanley, President and CEO of the Methodist Home for Children. As we have said several times in this broadcast, this is not only an advocacy group for children and family, uh, but also provide of services for children who are abused, neglected, and family uh, are suffering from family disruption and uh, even child abandonment and such. Uh, Bruce uh, has been. How long have you been in this job? Thirteen years. Well, you were absolutely made for it, and you have become a person of great passion in your work, and and uh, the entire state owes you so much uh, thanks for all the work that you've done to make this uh, not only a, a service but also um, a, a, a providing professional uh, advice for the rest of us on what to do about it. And in that regard, we have the General Assembly in session. We have Congress in session. What What's some legislation that is either pending or needs to be pending that will affect the work that you and other organizations like this do? One of the most important things for North Carolina is the implementation of Raise the Age. That legislation was passed about 18 months ago, and North Carolina finally joined the rest of the nation. So now what is that? We became the last state to recognize that 16, 17-year-olds are teenagers. And prior to that time, we were placing them in the adult prison population and not treating them as juvenile offenders. And so now through age 18, uh, you are treated as a juvenile in North Carolina. That starts October 31st. The challenge for North Carolina is funding services for that population. It yields to logic that more offenses are committed by the older teens instead of the younger teens. 
and the Division of Juvenile Justice uh, out of the Department of Public Safety uh, knows, because we've got census of this population in the adult prisons, that they're going to have an increase for juvenile justice of 64% uh, in their population base. And the important thing for us is to be there so we can provide therapeutic interactions. Because if you send an adolescent uh, off to a prison, it's well documented, you've sent them off to criminal college. And their pride in criminality increases as well as their knowledge and their skill set of criminal behavior. You send them to a therapeutic environment and you've got an opportunity to divert them and to keep them out of the criminal justice system for life. It is not only the humane thing to do, but it is the uh, great savings as required. One of the pieces of legislation that is uh, in front of uh, the state of North Carolina is known as the Juvenile Justice Reinvestment Act. In 2008, there was about $175 million in the budget for juvenile justice. There currently is about $125 million. And so what is needed in order to cover this, raise the age, and is to restore about $50 million of funding in order to cover that gap and provide for the influx of these teens that are coming in. And that will be a number of services. It'll be assessments. It's going to be treatment. And yes, in some cases, it's going to be uh, residential programs. They're going to be assigned uh, and sent by a judge. And that's a public safety issue as well as a treatment issue. But we really need to provide support for the Division of Juvenile Justice through the Juvenile Justice Reinvestment Act. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that this needs to be uh, in people's social consciousness as much as uh, financial consciousness, but the truth of the matter is the the difference between uh, a person being uh, involved in the criminal justice system for the rest of their life and being a taxpayer, uh, does anybody have a number on that? I mean, you know, what I would imagine it would be a million dollars a person over a lifetime. There is math on that, Don, and you're right. It is absolutely massive. And one of the things that we are doing when we have these young offenders with us, uh, particularly in our residential programs, though some of them we treat in-home, is that we're telling them that you have responsibility to other people. And instead of you being a drain on the system, we want you to become a taxpayer. And we operate two transitional living homes as well as some transitional living programs, which we immediately get these young people back in school, either community college, perhaps getting a GED, uh, sometimes going off to college, and we also get them employment and get them present in the workforce. And we're wanting them to take pride in the fact uh, that while your check may look a little too small to you and you think that the uh, government's got their hand in your wallet and taking taxes, that it's really a privilege to be able to contribute to that and to take care of other people. You know, I think uh, the uh, wonderful Indian expression of you have to walk in another man's uh, moccasins is so true, but there has to be a feeling of real helplessness when you are trying to improve yourself and everything is working against you. These are the people who are trying. Absolutely, and in the world of behavioral health, there is a phenomenon called learned helplessness in which someone has become frustrated so many times that they simply, in resignation, throw their hands up and say, why bother? And we teach 51 skills and are very specific uh, in our teaching and break each one of those skills down into some core components. And the purpose of that uh, is that we believe that uh, you can't think yourself into a new way of acting, but you can act yourself into a new way of thinking. Say that again. That's interesting. You can never act yourself into a new way of thinking. You can never think yourself into a new way of acting, excuse me, but you can act yourself into a new way of thinking. Uh, Dean Smith was a behavioral scientist, whether he knew it or not. 
and he used to talk to his players about the uh, importance of practice and, and said you just can't simply dream uh, and visualize that that's important but you have to have these routines built in and that's why he was so detail-oriented and so specific with what he did well you know we, we we're talking about all the things that are available there's hundreds and hundreds of great stories about involvement in athletics uh, either in the uh, in the middle school year, years uh, of what that does as far as team building and understanding of uh, the, the uh, practice of hard work will pay off. Absolutely. And one of the things that we try to emphasize with all our youth uh, is participation in team sports because we want them to be able to interact in that way with their peers as well as uh, be exposed to kind and gentle mentors. So what's at the top of your list right now If you uh, if when you leave here and go back to your office? Uh, what what's at the top of your list? Uh, we are working very hard, and thank you for giving me a chance to uh, speak to that on this issue of the Juvenile Justice Reinvestment Act and trying to secure funding uh, for Raise the Age and continuation funding for our existing programs. We also do need to raise support for the NC pre-K program and increase foster care rates. And so those funding issues are, are really at the at the top of the chart for me at this point in time. Well, there's a lot of hands out asking the legislators for money and so forth, but this truly is an investment in the future when you are looking at what the cost is versus what the payoff could be. Absolutely, and one of the things that we know is if you try to push these problems away, uh, there really is a pneumatic effect. It's like a piston. You might push it down, but it's going to pop back up later, and it's going to come back with renewed force and vigor. And so we are much better off uh, doing intervention uh, early and upstream. Bruce, how can people find out more about the work and the varied programs of the Methodist Home for Children? I would invite you to go to our website and look at mhfc.org. That's our agency's initials, MethodistHomeForChildren.org. And there you can see uh, some of the youth, some of the children, some of the families that we've served. Uh, You've got an opportunity to read some of their stories, and you can also watch some videos in which they are telling you in their own words. And we would uh, be delighted to engage anybody. And feel free to email or call. And, of course, uh, it would also give you uh, the opportunity to uh – help you with uh, fundraising and and, and paying for all of this. Absolutely, and we're delighted to come speak and to share if you've got a a congregation or a group that you're part of. Bruce Stanley, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, uh, We hope you will come back and be with us again and have some good news uh, as we continue this battle. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong. If you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and do just that. Uh, Jason will have another guest for us next week. So to next week, same time, same station. Have a nice week. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Carolina Newsmakers.